take your Bibles out this morning and turn with me please to Acts chapter 6. And I know what some of you are thinking, wait a minute, we're supposed to be starting Acts chapter 3 today. And indeed we are. But in the month of July, what are we doing? We're doing deacon nominations and going into a time of deacon election. And so if we wait until about six weeks from now, five or six weeks when this text would come up in our series, it would kind of be after the fact. So we're going to jump ahead this morning and then weeks to come we'll go back to chapter 3, 4, and 5. And then in five, six weeks when we get to chapter 6, we'll just skip over this, this passage then and keep moving So stand for the reading of God's word, please. I'll begin in verse 1, looking this morning at overcoming hurdles in ministry. Overcoming hurdles in ministry. Luke writes, Now in these days when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. And the twelve summoned the full number of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the word. And what they said pleased the whole gathering, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit, and Philip, and Prochorus, and Nicanor, and Timon, and Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. These they set before the apostles, and they prayed and laid their hands on them. And the word of God continued to increase. And the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Father, we thank you for that call that we have in Scripture to live changed lives. God, we know that when your Holy Spirit brings about the new birth in us, and we are born again, we are converted... The old has passed away. Behold, new has come. We're different people. And whatever our life has been before, God, we're to walk in holiness and righteousness and in the light of the Lord. And as people see us, as they see our character, they're to see a difference that Christ makes. Lord, we see that here in this passage about deacons. But God, I pray that no one listening to my voice this morning would would unplug their lives, so to speak, from what's said here. If they're of the opinion, I'm not a deacon, nor will I ever be. So what does this have to do with me? God, help them to see that it still says volumes. Because it's talking about the character of a believer. And how that character is recognized. Lord, speak to our hearts. We're in this time of deacon nomination and election. Give us wisdom in this matter. 
We pray for the right men who will be a blessing to your church and to me personally. And Lord, I pray for that one today who may not yet be a believer. That through the preaching of your word today, that something would be said. That your spirit would speak to their heart in some way to draw them to faith in Christ. And it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. To open up the message this morning, I thought about all the various ways that I could speak of very significant events that have taken place in church history. So many great examples. You can fall back to the time of the Reformation and Martin Luther nailing his 95 theses to the uh, church door there at Wittenberg. So many other things that we could speak about. But in the limitation of time, I I won't do that. But what I do want us to focus on this morning is, is just those places, a few of those places in the book of Acts alone, where very significant events took place that helped to shape the life and the history of the church. Probably the most important such instance out of the book of Acts would have to be Acts chapter 15. The Jerusalem Council. I want you to remember what was going on at the Jerusalem Council. Remember most of the church at that period of time was still Jewish. Even though the mission to the Gentiles had begun, but for the most part, the church, especially the leadership of the church, was still of Jewish background. And so with all of these Gentiles coming into the church, it was a concern for some of the Jews. What are we going to ask, what are we going to require of some of these new converts? Folks, I want you to think of what an important time and a potentially dangerous time that was for the gospel. You see, what if at the Jerusalem council they would have done what the churches of Galatia did that Paul chastened those churches about? The churches of Galatia wanted to add all kinds of other things onto salvation by grace through faith in Christ. They started saying a a person needed to be circumcised, needed to keep all of the Mosaic law. And Paul wrote to the Galatian churches saying, you're moving away from the gospel. Salvation is by grace through faith. It is not of ourselves. It is not a result of works, lest any man should boast. And he chastened the churches at Galatia because they were coming up with a Jesus plus something else salvation. Folks, that could have happened in Acts 15. But thank the Lord that it didn't. But what a monumental time that was. Our text this morning in Acts chapter 6 is another one of those pivotal moments in the life of the early church. Here a potential division has entered into the fellowship. And so will the church in its infancy be split? If it does split, what will happen to it? Will it survive? Will it prosper? 
John R.W. Stott writes, The devil's attack here was the cleverest of the three so far. Having failed to overcome the church by either persecution or corruption, he now tried distraction. If he could preoccupy the apostles with social administration, which though essential was nevertheless not their calling, they would neglect their God-given responsibilities to pray and to preach and so leave the church without any defense against false doctrine. What an important time this was. I want you to see today how the early church solved a very pressing problem. And you'll notice that their solution not only involved policy, but it involved people. A whole new grouping of servants was added, a grouping that came to be referred to as deacons. And I want you to see how important this group was and and how this group of deacons helped the early church to continue to flourish. And folks, also what I want you to understand this morning is that even if you're not a deacon or have no intention of becoming a deacon, this passage still speaks volumes to you. You see, it points out that God is looking for inward character in His people. Paul said in Ephesians 4.1 that we are to walk in a, ma- in a manner worthy of our calling and worthy of the gospel. Now if we walk worthy of the gospel, surely our lives are going to be viewed differently by the world. They're going to see a change in us. They're going to see a difference in us. You know, unfortunately, we live at a time in history that in some circles it would appear that character doesn't mean that much. If you have the right things on your resume, that's all that matters. But we know that that is not the case when it comes to issues related to the kingdom of God. God cares not simply about what we do, but also who we are because you see... Who we are is eventually going to shine through in what we do. And so do we have the kind of character that will issue into the right kind of things? And so that's certainly an application to the message this morning that applies to everybody. And so if you're not a deacon, I hope this morning will still be a challenge to you in this issue of what does your character say to others. And then, of course, we're going to look at what a a blessing, a good group of biblically-based, servant-minded deacons, what a blessing they can be to a group of people, to a church, and to a pastor. First thing I want you to notice with me this morning is the offense. Look at verse 1. Luke says, Now in these days, when the disciples were increasing in number, a complaint by the Hellenists arose against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution. Now put simply, the offense was this issue of negligence. Now, we do not need to assume that this negligence was intentional. In fact, in all probability, I don't think it was was intentional. Instead, it was negligence that simply happened because of the rapid growth of the early church. 
If we were to read again the the first five chapters of the book of Acts, we would see that they were very much involved in personal evangelism. They were going house to house and sharing the gospel, and they were involved in mass evangelism. The apostles were standing up before the multitudes, and they were preaching the gospel. And as they engaged in personal evangelism and mass evangelism, many new believers were being added to the church. In fact, the Bible says the Lord was adding to the church daily those who were being saved. And so it was a situation of rapid growth. And any time rapid growth is happening in a group of people, needs can easily be overlooked. And tragically, often it's the most vulnerable whose needs get overlooked first. And that's what was going on here. Now remember also in the book of Acts, you had two key groups. There were the native Hebrews. They most likely spoke Hebrew in the more formal settings. They spoke Aramaic in the more casual settings. And then you had the Hellenistic Jews. These were the Jews who had moved outside of Israel and many of them had now moved back home and they spoke Greek. You see, we need to understand what had happened centuries earlier under a man by the name of Alexander the Great who was the leader of the Greek Empire. What a tremendous leader he was. What a tremendous military general. And the Greeks rapidly spread across the ancient world conquering various peoples. And as they conquered various peoples, Alexander had a vision. Alexander wanted to make the world Greek. He wanted to instill Greek culture everywhere that he went. And Greek language and Greek customs everywhere he conquered peoples. It's known as the Hellenization of the ancient world. And a lot of the Jews who had moved into these various countries, they got caught up in that. And so they had become Hellenized. Now many of them as they got older and they were in the sunset years of their lives... As is common even today, older folks sometimes will move back to where they're from. They'll go back to their hometown to live out their days. And something like that was going on here. They had moved back. And they had heard the gospel. They had been saved. And they were in the church now. And they felt like, and their group felt like, they were being overlooked. And so they came to the apostles with complaints. Now the word here for complaints is the word for murmuring. It is the same word that is used in the Septuagint, the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. It's the same word that was used in the book of Exodus when, when the people out in the wilderness, when they left Egypt, how they murmured against Moses. Same word here. They began to murmur. They began to complain. And this came to the attention of the apostles. Now, who were the apostles? The apostles were the, the 12 original disciples of Jesus Minus Judas, of course. He betrayed the Lord. He's dead by now. 
uh, he hung himself. And you'll recall in Acts chapter 1, uh, they had a prayer meeting and a time when they elected Matthias to come in and replace Judas. And so this group of 12 makes up the apostles at that point. And as I've told you before, that is why by the strictest definition, the, the best biblical definition of the word apostle, there can be no apostles today. Well, the murmuring came to these 12 apostles. Now, secondly, I want you to notice the the offer that was made. The offer, it says in verse 2, And the twelve summoned the full number of of the disciples and said, It's not right that we should give up preaching the word of God to serve tables. Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. But we will devote ourselves to prayer and to the ministry of the Word. Now, the nice thing to see here is how they handled the situation. It's so important to the life of the church in how conflicts are dealt with. You see, anytime groups of people come together, you're faced with many different opinions, preferences, and and convictions. And if you're not careful, conflicts can erupt from all that. And so it's important how differences are navigated. And that's what they did here. They handled this, they navigated this in such an admirable way. Now, folks, do you realize how important this was? This could have been a recipe for the first church split in church history and how devastating that could have been for early Christianity. But I want you to notice how they handled the problem. The proposal was for a division of labor. The apostles knew that their primary attention had to be given to the ministry of the word. Now they were not saying that their work was more spiritual. They were not saying that waiting on tables and serving is unimportant. They were simply recognizing that they couldn't do it all. And if they tried, they wouldn't do it very effectively. God had called them to a very specific task of ministering the Word of God and they couldn't allow anything to hinder or hamper that. That would have been unhealthy for them. It would have been unhealthy for the church. It's interesting how even Jesus in the Gospels, when when multitudes tried to, to get Jesus to bow to their demands and their priorities, he wouldn't allow the multitudes to do this to him. I think of the occasion in Mark chapter 1, verse 35. The Bible says Jesus, the early part of the day, had gone out and he'd got alone with God to commune with God uh, before sunrise. And he was out there communing with God. Now, Now remember the day before he had been in this particular village doing miracles and, and teaching and everybody was amazed at what Christ was doing. 
Well, the next day sun comes up and everybody in that village, they're anxious to find Jesus because, hey, there's more miracles that they want him to do. There's more healing of the sick that they want him to do. There's more parables or teachings that they want to listen to. And so the disciples come and find Jesus and they say, Jesus, what are you doing? Do you not realize the multitudes are looking for you? And what did Jesus say? Well, first of all, think with me a moment what he didn't say. He didn't jump up and say, oh, guys, let's get going then. Let's go over to them and and, and try to meet all their needs and all their expectations. No. You know what he said? He said, come on, guys, let's now go to a different city and a different village for it was this reason to which God has called me. In other words... He didn't allow everybody else's agenda or everybody else's priorities to become his priorities. He stayed focused on what God had called him to do. And that's exactly what the early apostles are doing here. And so they make an offer for a division of labor so that everybody gets involved in ministry and it doesn't all land on one or two people. Now that's important today. You know, it's very sad that every year in America, 17,000 ministers walk away from the ministry. That's sad. 17,000 every year. They cite long hours, burnout, unrealistic expectations, criticism as all the reasons. And sadly, in surveys among ministers, the majority of ministers' kids and spouses say that the ministry has been detrimental to the family in some regard. He's supposed to be the hospital chaplain, the marriage and family counselor, the resident theologian, and otherwise all things to all people. And then those who tend to be the least involved at rolling up their sleeves and getting involved and sharing the load, those who are the least involved tend to be the loudest critics. And so the offer of instructions here was that there was a great need for division of labor. Notice something else they did. They didn't allow the complainers to set the agenda. That's a dangerous thing to do. They didn't allow the complainers to set the agenda. But I want you to notice too that they they neither disregarded the complaints. They didn't ignore these needs. And so they came up with a plan. They came up with an offer uh, where those who were neglected would put forth some names and more people would get involved in ministry. And as more got involved in ministry, more would develop ownership. More people would start using their God-given gifts And then the apostles could get back to doing what God had called them to do. Folks, we need to see today that that's still so basic to church life. That is the biblical plan for the church. Do you realize from the moment of your conversion, you get at least two gifts? You get the Holy Spirit. 
God seals you with his spirit. Paul says in Ephesians 1, the Holy Spirit in your life is God's stamp or God's seal of ownership on your life that you indeed now are his child. And then along with the Holy Spirit, you get at least one spiritual gift. And your gift is joined together with the other gifts in the church to form the body, you have a complete body. If everybody is faithful at using their gifts, you don't have a foot, a hand trying to do, a foot trying to do what a hand ought to be doing. You don't have an eye doing what an ear ought to be doing or vice versa. Everybody's using their gifts. Everybody is is a vessel of the Lord. They're using their gifts for the good of the body, the edification of the body. In fact, that's exactly how Ephesians 4 says it's supposed to be. Ministers are supposed to be training the body to exercise their gifts. Ownership. That's what they're doing here. Now, when you, when you look at the text here, you see that the apostles had the people put forward the names of those they wanted to serve. The apostles didn't just come and say, here's the guys we want in. They allowed the people to put forward the names. And they selected them. Now, I, on top of that, though, I want you to notice the important principle that While they had the opportunity of putting forward certain names, nonetheless, there were certain qualities that they were to look for in these men. Notice what he says there in verse 3 about this. He says, Therefore, brothers, pick out from among you seven men of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we will appoint to this duty. And so they didn't just fill these slots with warm bodies. But they had to be men who were qualified. Now, what were some of the qualifications? First of all, they were to be men of good repute. What kind of reputation do you have? Would people you work with be surprised to learn that you go to church? Would they be surprised to find out months down the road? That you're a Christian at all? Would they be surprised to learn that you're a deacon? What's your reputation at church? Are you known as a gossip or somebody that's dishonest or will do anything in your power to get ahead for yourself? Do you have a filthy mouth? Do you lack integrity? Or would people who know you at work say, you know, that's a godly man. That's an honest man. What is your reputation in the outside world and in the community at large? That kind of thing matters. Choose men of good repute. Several years back, there was a famous 29-year-old Christian singer in Australia who wrote a song about how God heals God can heal emotions, God can heal relationships, sometimes God heals physically. Churches and other musicians started singing his songs. His songs became tremendous hits. He had an album that went right to the top of the charts. Now, to bolster his ratings and his music, 
he concocted a story that he had cancer. He would have images of himself sitting in doctor's offices. He wrote fake emails from doctors to himself. He would wear a fake oxygen tube and and, and a fake tank to churches and concerts and public gatherings. And everybody was so moved by this guy who had written these songs about God being our refuge and God being our healer. And they were saying, you know, here's a musician who's fighting all these personal battles on his own and yet he's still faithful at carrying out his ministry. There's only one problem with it. None of it was true. It was all a hoax. He came clean. He later confessed that he had such a strong addiction to pornography that every morning he would wake up and he would feel guilty about going to his job, which was his ministry position. He'd get up the next day and feel guilty. He'd work a couple of days and then start calling in sick again because every morning he got up so guilt-ridden because of this hidden life that he was leading. And so he thought to himself, I'm calling in sick all of these days. Hey, it's going to get to a point everybody knows I don't just have the sniffles or a sore throat. I've got to come up with a significant illness of why I'm out for such long periods of time. And so he came up with the fact that he had cancer. Finally came clean. Some, some have wanted to bring him up on charges because on their social media they were doing fundraisers to raise money for him that he could use in his medical treatments and so forth. And his dad now says that he is undergoing or has been undergoing psychiatric treatment. Now folks, let me ask you a question. What effect do stories like that have on Christianity in the minds of the lost? What happens when it comes out that some deacon or some pastor or some denominational worker has a hidden life? It's an embarrassment to his family, to his children, to his community, and and, and even to his church. Maybe especially to his church. Think back to the last 10, 20, 30 years in Christian life. The, the PTL scandals, the Jimmy Swagger type, thing, all those type of scandals people were involved in things they shouldn't have been involved in. And when it came out, it was an embarrassment to them. Is there anything hidden going on in your life that if it were broadcast publicly, it would be an embarrassment to you, to your wife, to your children, to your church? Deal with it. Deal with it. Get rid of it. Paul, uh, Luke is saying here in the book of Acts, when, when, and, and the apostles were saying when it came to selecting men to serve the church, it was to be men of a solid, a good reputation. Second qualification, full of the Spirit. We need servants who have a heart for God. We need men who display the fruit of the Spirit. What's it going to look like? Being full of the Spirit can be such a nebulous thing, hard to pin down. What's it look like? Well, it ought to at least look like Galatians 5, 22 and 23. 
Paul says the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Are those qualities in your life? Those are things God's looking for. A third qualification here, full of wisdom. A man with a good head on his shoulders. A man with some some good common sense. Now folks, he's not talking here about the wisdom of the world. James in James 3 talks about a wisdom of the world that is is self-seeking, that is arrogant. James says it is even demonic. But the wisdom from above is good and holy and pure and and peaceable and righteous. That's the kind of wisdom that we need. The wisdom of the world focuses in on the man and his accomplishments and his praise, but the wisdom of God focuses on on God's agenda and God's glory. Whose praise and glory are you living for? Now, you look at these three qualifications, and if that's all we had to go on in the church today, I mean, it would still speak volumes to us. But I want you to remember, and the church back then, and and the church today, and the church back then, they didn't have the whole canon of Scripture in their hands like we have today. We have more today. So you look over, I want to I want to ask you to look over to 1 Timothy 3 because in 1 Timothy 3 Paul adds some additional qualifications to Acts chapter 6. In 1 Timothy 3 Paul writes, "Deacons likewise must be dignified, not double-tongued, not addicted to much wine, not greedy for dishonest gain. They must hold the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience and let them also be tested first, then let them serve." As deacons, if they prove themselves blameless, their wives likewise must be dignified, not slanderers, but sober-minded, faithful in all things. Let deacons each be the husband of one wife, managing their children and their households well. For those who serve well as deacons gain a good standing for themselves and also great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. So Paul adds some other things here. Reverent or dignified. In other words, there there is a serious spiritually minded attitude that he is to have. Deacons can have fun. There's nothing wrong with that. We have fun in some of our meetings. But the word here means that when it comes to the things of the Lord, when it comes to the work of ministry, we're very serious minded. We're very dignified in how we do that. Then he says, not double-tongued. He's trustworthy. As he carries out his ministry of looking after the needs of the church, he won't tell one person one thing and another person something entirely different. What a distasteful thing that is. When a man's only concern with being popular, he might tell one group he ministers to one thing, and then in another group, he turns around and tells that group, what they want to hear. And pretty soon it catches up to him. And when it does, everybody recognizes that he's a good politician, but they lose respect for him because he's not a man of his word. And you know how exhausting that must be too. If a guy's double-tongued, I mean, he's got to keep straight all these different stories. You know, what I tell this person, what I tell this person, what I tell this group... 
Boy, it's got to be exhausting trying to keep up with all that. Why not just tell the truth and then you don't have to worry about what you said to different groups because you consistently say the same thing. Then he says, not addicted to much wine. Now somebody says, oh good, does this mean that I can be addicted to some wine? I hear you, but you gotta, you got to deal with texts like 1 Corinthians 8 and 9 and Romans 14. You know, there are things in the Bible that not everything in the Bible we have a Ten Commandment on. There's some principles and so forth that are laid down for us that govern our lives and that address some of these areas where it might be a little bit of a gray area for us. Paul dealt with a situation at Corinth that I think applies to what he's saying to Timothy right here with this issue. It had to do with meat sacrificed to idols. You could go down to a pagan idol, a pagan market in that day and you could buy meat at a really good discounted price that had been used in pagan sacrifices. And Paul said, hey... Good stewardship. I can go down there and I can buy that meat. That saves me and my family some money. Again, good stewardship. And and I don't recognize that idol. I know that idol's a dead idol. There's only one true and living God. So, hey, I just get a good deal. I save some money. He invites some friends over. There's a weak believer, a new Christian. He's sitting down eating that meat and, boy, this meat tastes good. Where'd you get it? He says, well, I got down to such and such market. That pagan market where all that, that meat that's been sacrificed to pagan gods and idols, yeah, that's what you're eating. And, and Paul says, that brother is highly offended. I mean, it just gets all over his conscience that, that he's eating meat that's been sacrificed to some pagan idol. And so you really mess him up. Paul says, you know what, I might have the personal liberties to do something. It may be just perfectly okay for me. But if my brother is offended by it, I won't do it. I'm not going to be a stumbling block. Wise is the Christian man who realizes that his life is not an island unto himself. What he does influences and impacts other people. Next he says, not greedy for dishonest gain. We've got to live in this world. We've got to support our families. We want our businesses to prosper and, and, and do well. Without a profit, we can't save for the future. The book of Proverbs talks about the wisdom in saving for the future. In fact, the book of Proverbs says it's a foolish man who doesn't. Without a profit, you can't adequately look after your employees. You can't help them meet the needs of their family. Folks, I happen to believe that good old-fashioned capitalism is not a bad thing. I think God created us to work. He gave us the potential of being creative, of being industrious. I think that's a part of what it means to be created in the image of God. And when people are industrious and creative, they're rewarded for what they do. People need their goods and services and some end up making 
a pretty good living off of what they do. Is there anything wrong with that? No. No. But what the Bible is saying here is just don't be greedy and selfish. In fact, in 1 Timothy, Paul also says to Timothy to teach those in the church who are wealthy to also be wealthy in good deeds and sharing. Folks, there's nothing wrong with money. There's nothing wrong with a lot of it if somebody got it honestly through hard work. The Bible doesn't condemn money. The Bible condemns the love of money. Some of the godliest people, some of the godliest examples in the Bible were rich men. The Bible says of both Abraham and Job that they were some of the wealthiest men of their days. And they were godly. Bible saying just don't be a greedy person. I think on a flip side of that coin, you could say along with this, just be somebody who's content with what you have. Next, he says, holding the mystery of the faith with a pure conscience. Uh, deacons are to be doctrinally sound. Do you know your Bible? Do you know what you believe and why? Now, I'm not saying you've got to be able to enter into some kind of theological debate at the t- town library. But could you sit down with one of your families who has an 11-year-old son that's asking questions about the Christian faith? And could you sit down with that family and that child and explain the Bible and explain the Christian faith to them? Could you do that? A deacon ought to be able to do that. I think one of the criticisms of the modern church, and I think in in many, many ways it's, it's a valid criticism. We don't know anything anymore. Nobody reads theology. Nobody reads the classics. Nobody reads church history. Nobody, hardly people aren't reading their Bibles anymore. We don't know that much. Go home and Google the New England primer that was used in the grade schools in this nation up into the early part of the 20th century. You scroll down through that and get to the Bible section and the theological sections. There are questions there I can guarantee you most men today, even in their ministerial ordination councils, they aren't even asked questions like that. Folks, we've got to get back to knowing a little bit more about our faith. If we were to keep reading in the book of Acts, we would see Stephen. Stephen's a deacon who's elected here, who's who's put forth as one of the names. And and the very next chapter in, in the book of Acts, Stephen is going out and he's preaching the gospel. He's not a minister, he's not a theologian, he's a deacon. And he's out there preaching about Jesus. And he's given an apologetic, a defense of the Christian faith to unbelievers. Stephen, a deacon. What an example. Also, he became the first martyr of the early church too, didn't he? Now, here's one I wish we could almost overlook, this next one. Boy, what a hot potato it is to deal with today. But we can't can't overlook it and be honest with the text. Husband of one wife, uh, uh, Mias Gnaikos Andres. 
What in the world does that mean? Well, before we get too deep in this issue, let me preface my comments by saying it's a good thing that issues like this are addressed in the Bible. Folks, in a society where everything is shifting, the church is the one place where biblical marriage should still be honored. Because the Word of God teaches marriage between a man and a woman, hopefully for life. That's the standard God holds up in His Word. If that weren't the case, all the interpretive issues over this phrase right here would be pointless. We wouldn't even need to debate what this means. If God's Word didn't hold up so highly... The sanctity of marriage. So what's this mean? Well, Roman Catholics believe that only a single man can be a pastor or deacon. His one woman is the church, they say. Now, Paul argued to the Corinthians, though, that he had every single right to have a wife just like Simon Peter and the other disciples. So I think the Roman Catholic Church has some problems with that interpretation. Some say it means you have to be married. In the Eastern Orthodox Church, the higher clergy are to be celibate, but their parish ministers are required to be married. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians saying he wished they would remain single and celibate as he was. To say that you have to be married would mean that had the Corinthians followed Paul's advice on remaining unmarried, then nobody at Corinth could have ended up being qualified to be a deacon. Some say it means if you're married and your wife dies and you remarry, then you become disqualified. But Paul addressed that in Romans chapter 7. He said, death dissolves the marriage bond to where the remaining spouse is free to remarry again without carrying the stigma of being an adulterer or an adulteress. Some say it rules out polygamist, which obviously it does. But that's not the only meaning here because contrary to what some people believe, Polygamy was very rare in the first century. And oh, by the way, the Roman Empire even had a civil law against polygamy. Could you find it in the first century world? Sure, you could find it every now and then in small pocket. Like in America today, do we hold to polygamy? Of course not. But can you find polygamy in certain areas of America in small, rare pockets? Yes. Same thing back then. So not very likely that Paul would have been chiefly addressing an issue that was rare and that was outlawed. Some say it simply means committed to your one wife. Committed to your one wife. And almost all scholars agree that that is the basic fundamental meaning. On exegetical grounds, you even take the word mias here. Mia meaning one. And and, and gynaikos, andros. 
a one-woman man or a man committed to one woman. That's the foundational meaning. And that means that if you've only been married one time and you're still married, but you're a flirtatious man, you're not qualified. You might be a man that's never committed uh, uh, adultery, but maybe there's an emotional affair you have going on with somebody. It's, it's heading in the direction of the physical. It's not there yet. Technically, you could say, hey, I'm a one-woman man, but no, not really. So it would include things like that. Finally, some say it rules out divorced men. Now, there are some things... In favor of that interpretation, there's some things against it. Against the interpretation is the fact that both Jesus and Paul set down two situations where divorce was permissible. And that would be cases of either abandonment or adultery. Secondly, against the interpretation that it's referring primarily to divorced men here is the fact that the Bible says when a man becomes a new creation in Christ, when he's saved, when he's born again, all things passed away, behold, all things have become new. Perhaps in favor of it including divorce is the same grounds I spoke of a minute ago uh, when I talked about alcohol, the risk of being a stumbling block. Now folks, before going further with this, let me say that we need to understand that while there may never be truly a 100% innocent party, many people don't appreciate, don't realize how diligently How diligently some marriage partners try to hold their marriage together and the other party will simply have nothing to do with reconciliation under any circumstances. I've seen some very fine, 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 deeply committed, wonderful, godly people get hurt over this. I know a couple of cases where a man was divorced time he was 19 or 20 years old and now he's been married to his second wife 40, 50, 60 years. Wonderful track record. Surely those things have to be at least considered. Now here's what I tell divorced men and and I know this unfortunately doesn't help in all cases but, but however unfortunate this may be, the truth of the matter is while a divorced man with a new track record may be very qualified, even more qualified than some others, yet at some point I can guarantee him that his divorce will become an issue. It'll become a stumbling block and, and it's him, it's him and his family that are going to end up being deeply hurt. You say, well, that's not fair. And it's not fair. But I've been around this way too long to know otherwise. And for that reason, I would counsel divorced men looking either to pastor a church or to be a deacon that though you may be more qualified than some, I would advise you to serve in a thousand different other ways. You don't have to be a pastor or a deacon to do that work. Just do it without having the the title or the name. 
I think of a, I think of a pastor friend of mine. He's, he's now deceased. He, unfortunately, he died very young. He died, he had a, just a routine, went in for a routine surgery not even a serious surgery, complications with the anesthesia after that surgery. He ended up dying that evening. Fine gentleman. Pastored a church. His wife started running around with one of the deacons. He, he got out. He knew about church. Got, uh, church knew about. All parties got together, and that church, bless their hearts, that church and that pa- they did everything they could to resolve that situation. That pastor said, I've, "I forgive you. We'll move on. We'll go for count." That church was even willing to forgive them and, and just forget the past and move. On. Everybody was willing to do what should have been done and that wife and that deacon would have nothing of it they ran off together he ended up leaving the church just so it wouldn't cause a lack of peace 10, 15 years went by and another church over in Charlotte called him to be their pastor and he said no I don't need to do that they said why he, he told them they kind of checked out everything. They said, no, you, you have been completely exonerated of it. You've done everything you could have done at the time to save your marriage. We still want you to be our pastor. He went to be their pastor. Church started growing. Wasn't long. New members came in. It was an issue. It all blew up in his face. They asked him to leave. They asked him to resign. Tragic. Tragic. I'm simply saying, like it or not, it's going to surface. You say in those cases, in cases like that, it shouldn't be an issue. And you're probably right, it shouldn't be. But it will become an issue. So just go back to that Romans 14 thing again. If there's something might be a stumbling block, just don't do it. But folks, to show you how inconsistent we can be with this, I'll give you two scenarios. And these are scenarios most lay people in the church would never know about. Maybe just, just I know about this. Got a man in the church who cheats. His marriage holds. His wife stays with him. They make it work out. They go through counseling. He ends up becoming a deacon at some point. Scenario two. A man is cheated on. He fights like crazy to hold his marriage together. No matter, the marriage ends. We overlook him for life. It's pretty inconsistent, isn't it? Pretty inconsistent. But that's why I just tell these men, I say, serve in in some other way. Okay? Just, Just serve in some other way. It will be an issue. Lastly, Paul says here, managing their children in their own households well. Again, perfection is never achieved this side of heaven. And not even the home of a deacon is without its share of trials and tribulations. But nonetheless, this man is to be an example and a standard bearer at home. Now real quickly, time's passed. We need to go. I won't even go into this last thing much. But back in Acts chapter 
6. I want you to see the outcome of this. The outcome. says, The word of God continued to increase, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Folks, you see what's going on here? The division of labor... They settled that issue. They got everybody owning some of the ministry and doing what they could do, doing what they could contribute so the apostles could do what they were called to do. The men called to be deacons were men of character. They were qualified to serve in that position. And what ended up happening? The church ended up being blessed and the gospel advanced. It's this issue of character that matters. Do you have the kind of character that when God is looking for something to be done, your name would just naturally gravitate to the top? That's how all of us ought to be, folks, as believers. All of us would want to try to have lives. We live our lives in such a way that in the church, when somebody needs something done, they'd say, hey, you know, check this person out. That's a godly person there. That ought to be something all of us strive for. How ridiculous. I've heard of situations before where where a church would get together and say, well, maybe if we make so-and-so a deacon, if we make him a deacon, maybe he'll start coming to church. How absurd can you be? Live a life that God could point a finger at you and say, Here's a person for that. Look at them. And that's why I say this message ought to have broader application than just deacons. To anybody, because all of us as Christians ought to be concerned about having a life of integrity. Perhaps there's something hidden in your life. Something you're dealing with privately. I'm going to urge you to deal with that. Resolve it. If it's something you need to repent of, repent of it. Deal with it. Don't have something in your life that would be an embarrassment to you. There may be somebody who wants to come forward this morning and say, God, I'm, I'm not pitching in. I'm not doing what I could do. Don't want to be a deacon necessarily, but things in other ways I'm not doing. I need to get busy serving on this committee or in youth ministry or children or music. I need to contribute. Answer that call this morning. Perhaps somebody else this morning, God's been working on your heart about salvation, drawing you to faith in Christ. You have nothing to gain by putting it off and potentially everything to lose.